I could sing about Jesus all day, can't you? Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Most people read the Christmas story around this time of year, but we start in Luke chapter 2. We start in Luke chapter 2. It's the nativity story. It's the birth of Jesus. Christmas. It's the mass of Christ. Also, the birth of Christ. It's about Jesus' birth. And so we begin in Luke chapter 2. We read from Luke chapter 2 today already. Luke chapter 2, the birth of Jesus. But, of course, chapter 1 comes before chapter 2. Have you ever wondered, why did Luke historian, doctor, Luke, why did he begin with Elizabeth and Zechariah and not with Mary and Joseph? His whole gospel is not in chronological order. Now, you could say, well, Elizabeth and Zechariah, they came first, they're older. John the Baptist, their son, was born first. That's true. But I wonder if the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah was first to give a frame a frame and a setting for the story of Christmas. I wonder if their story frames the greater story of what God was doing in the world. Elizabeth and Zechariah didn't have a child, but the world was missing a child too. The world also was barren and needed a son that was promised. And so there's this contrast and this setting for the, the Christmas story on purpose in Luke chapter 1. The story is one of suffering and waiting. Zechariah and Elizabeth were God-fearing people. They did all the right things. They, they followed all of God's rules, and yet they couldn't have children. And you know, in that day, to not be able to have children, to be barren, was considered a curse. A woman that couldn't have a child was considered punished by God. If you look later in Luke chapter 1, the angel is speaking to Mary and says about Elizabeth, the one who is called, he doesn't use Elizabeth, the one who is called barren. The story begins with suffering and waiting. Elizabeth and Zechariah suffered through barrenness. What about you? Maybe you can relate to their story. Have you ever felt as if God was letting you suffer for no good reason? Have you ever felt like, God, why are you allowing this trial and this circumstance to happen to me? It doesn't happen to everyone else. Why are you allowing me to go through this trouble? Maybe you felt like, God was even mad at you. Have you ever wondered if God was upset with you? 
Like when a person gives you the cold shoulder and doesn't help you because they're angry? Maybe instead of missing a child, you're missing something else in your life. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe God is allowing you to suffer without someone close to you, and you don't understand why. Maybe God allowed for you to lose somebody, maybe even lose a child. Maybe it's an answer to a 20-year-old cry for help. Maybe you've been praying for decades, God, would you please answer this prayer, and God doesn't. That's the setting of Elizabeth and Zechariah, who were advanced in years. They were old. The King James Version says they were stricken with years. I think that makes more sense than advanced of years. You know anybody old? I don't know, maybe you guys don't know anybody old. Hey, if you, if you ever do meet an old person, you can ask them, hey, do you feel advanced in years? I bet they'll say, no, I feel stricken in years. It's more of a stricken. And they were barren. They didn't have children. And whether it's a baby, a spouse, an answer, a cure, a solution, Elizabeth and Zechariah's story, their part of the Christmas narrative reminds us that God is still at work when we're in pain and when we're missing something that we desperately want, maybe even something that we need. That's what their story reminds us. So I'm going to take a look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, and I want to just with you Let's look at the scriptures. Let's look at God's word. Let's examine them. Let's see what can we learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth's story. And we'll start in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Now, you're all familiar with the division of Abijah, but just in case you're not, Zechariah was a priest. Back in his day 2,000 years ago, to be a priest, you had to be born a priest. You couldn't go to seminary to be a priest. You couldn't feel called to be a priest. You couldn't aspire to be a priest. It's not like elders we have today and pastors we had today. You had to be born of a certain lineage. You were born a priest. Now, you had to be a good guy or else they'd kick you out, but you were born a priest. And the division of Abijah, if you look back in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 10, it gives a lineage of Aaron. Aaron, you know, the first priest, the older brother of Moses. It's from his line. You know, he had two sons. They didn't work out. Two more sons. They did better. And he had a bunch of kids. That's where the tribe of Levi uh, became the priests when God gave the law and the, the tabernacle and gave them the structure that they can connect with him through a priest. A priest was a mediator between the people and God. So you had priests who acted on behalf of people toward God, offering sacrifice, sacrifices. And then you had prophets who did the reverse. They acted on behalf of God to speak to the people. And so the priests were that way, and Zechariah was a priest, a division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. His wife was also of the family of Aaron. It, they were a priestly family. That's the setting. And get verse 6. And they were both righteous before God. So what's the setting? What is Luke telling us? What is God telling us already? Already we have this setting of this, uh, and we'll talk about Herod later, but we have the setting of this couple that were the elite couple. This was like the cream of the crop. 
They were born in the lineage of Aaron. He was born a priest. He was born ready to be righteous, to lead other people unto righteousness. That's what the priest did, to, to work on behalf of the people to God. And his wife was even born under the lineage of Aaron. So they grew up with uh, their culture and their ancestry was, let's glorify God. This was the cream of the crop. This was the couple of all couples. And it says they were both righteous before God. You can't get better than that walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. I haven't been that since I was one. You know, I don't know if any of you walk blamelessly with God, obeying all his commandments and statues. That's the setting of this couple. So Luke is telling us, hey, I'm narrowing in, I'm zeroing in on this couple. Listen to their story. This was as good as it gets. And then verse 7 should surprise you. It should shock you. Anybody reading this text, anybody hearing this story, as soon as it gets to verse 7 says, this doesn't make sense. That's wrong. Did he write that correctly? Is that true? You, you see this couple that's so godly and righteous and born in the right family, born at the right time, doing all the right things, and yet they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So you have this couple that were both righteous and blameless but they suffered infertility. So one of the first lessons you learn as you look at Zechariah and Elizabeth's story is suffering is not always a punishment. As you think about their story, one of the first truths that God is revealing is he's not punishing them. They're righteous. They're following God. They're doing all the right things, yet their life was upside down, took a wrong turn. It wasn't good for them. People around them would know them as barren, not, not only not blessed, but cursed. That's the background of their story. But Luke, obviously, in telling this story, giving us this picture of them, is saying, listen, it's not their fault. You are not supposed to always look at suffering when you have to endure suffering as punishment. It's not always punishment. That barrenness was not because of something they did or did not do. Suffering's not always your fault. God allows his people to suffer. You can think of Old Testament characters. You can think of Abraham and Sarah. She was barren until she was 90 years old. God promised Abraham decades before, I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to give you, you're going to be a father of many. That's what Abraham means. And his wife couldn't bear children until she was 90, until they got a son. You think of their, their kids, Isaac, <coughs> I'm sorry, Isaac and Rebekah. She was barren and couldn't have kids. You think of Jacob and Rachel. Rachel couldn't have kids. You think of Hannah, uh, Samuel's mom, and her husband Elkanah, who no one ever talks about. But you think of Hannah. She was barren and she couldn't have kids. And so the idea of the scriptures is this was not a punishment on a family, but yet the people took it as a curse. Because for a husband to marry a woman and her not to be able to have kids felt like a curse on the family. They wanted to continue their lineage. They wanted to continue their family. They wanted their name to move on, and they couldn't because if they couldn't have kids. I think of Isaac and Rebecca. I remember reading this. Now, you guys have probably already known this for years. I learned it this year. 2021 was my year to wake up to Genesis 25. Genesis chapter 25, the story of Isaac and Rebecca, starting in verse 20. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. Now, just remember that number. He was 40. Got married a little later in life. No big deal. He was 40 years old. He marries Rebekah. The daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, the Pateram, <laughs> the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. 
He, he married Rebecca. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was, she was barren. Barren mean you couldn't have children. That's a big deal. Actually, God's command to the people at this time was be fruitful and multiply. multiply. He, he wanted to spread the people out throughout the earth. You were meant to have kids. You were designed to have kids. Why is she not having kids? So Isaac, like a good husband, prayed for his wife. She was barren. And the next sentence, and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. That quick, right? That easy. She can't have kids. His husband's a good guy. He's like, God, would you let her have kids? And God's like, okay, she can have kids. Doesn't it seem that way? When you, I thought it for years. I thought that's how the story went. Read down to verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. So she conceives, she's got twins. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. He came out red and hairy and nasty like all babies do. Anyway, afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And they've got their own story, a big story. They're a big part of the redemption story. Now listen to this sentence. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, I don't know how they do this in Common Core math, but when I went to school, you just subtract. So Isaac was 40 when he got married. His wife, Rebecca, couldn't have kids. He prayed for her, and then God answered that prayer, and when he was 60 years old, she got pregnant and had kids. Now, I'm no math magician, but that's 20 years. 60 minus 40 is 20. He prayed for her for 20 years years. I just want to let that sit in. This year, I had to pray for Courtney for a couple of things that she's been going through. I had to pray for 20 days that God would have mercy on her, and those 20 days felt like forever. I can't imagine praying for 20 years. Year one, God, would you please give us a child? You've promised a child through our line. Are we mistaken? Is this wrong? What's going on? Year two, year three, year five, year seven. Year seven, are they even praying anymore on year seven? Year 10, year 11, year 15. You ever pray for something for 15 years, wondering if God even cares? Is he even listening? God, why? Why am I barren? Why am I suffering? Why are you not answering this prayer? 20 years he had to pray for his wife. Why do the righteous suffer? We can learn from Job. We can learn from the characters in the Bible. I don't really have a great answer for all that. I just trust God. That's it. I know that God chooses to allow his people to suffer. And I'm not smart enough. I'm not to that pay grade. I don't understand why. I know that it happens. I know that if you read the scriptures, you can't avoid it. You can't talk it away. You can't just positive it away. God allows his people that he loves to suffer, and he chooses to allow that. I don't understand that completely. But suffering is not always a punishment. And God teaches that over and over in his word. When you are suffering, it's not because God is mad at you. God has a plan. He's doing something else. You know what else I know? From Romans chapter 5. Suffering produces hope. We know that suffering produces hope in God. In Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What, what is it with Paul and James with their, oh, be happy when you're suffering? 
You know, what is it with them? And Peter, and First Peter, what's all this? Oh, be happy in your suffering. What does that even mean? They keep saying that. Rejoice in your suffering. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. When you have to suffer, you rejoice not in the suffering because there's nothing good about suffering. That's why you have to endure. That's why that word endure. You know what endure means? It means that you have to stay steady under immense pressure and weight. It causes you to sweat. It causes you to shake. You feel like you want to give up. Have you ever... I mean, some of us have exercised. Have you ever maxed out and you're like, oh, I can't do anymore, and you just give up? That's what endurance is speaking toward. You feel like you can't go any farther and you just try to endure. That's the image of enduring. When you have to suffer, the Bible says it's good because you have to endure. And endurance produces character. As you endure, as you decide, I'm not going to give up, I'm going to keep staying faithful like Elizabeth and Zechariah, I'm going, to keep, I'm going to keep my faith in God, it produces character within you. It refines you. you. You stop thinking of the comfort and the easy way out and the quick answers because they don't come. You have no hope in quick answers because you don't have quick answers. All of a sudden, you have to divert your eyes to your suffering and your circumstance, and you have to lift your eyes and look up. You realize the answer for your soul isn't found here. So it produces character. It refines you. It, it shaves off the rough edges of who you are. Produces character and character produces hope. It gives you a hope. Why? Because your hope is not in this world any longer. You're no longer hoping for the baby. That's not where your hope is because you don't have the baby. Your hope now becomes God. You were not created for this world as it is. You, you understand more. This is broken. This is not the answer. This is not the end. This is not heaven. Heaven is awaiting. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. You're hoping now in God. It creates that hope in you. And hope doesn't put us to shame. I love verse 5, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When God doesn't give you an answer, he gives you a spirit. And he needs you to suffer and endure and produce character and start hoping, not in comfort and convenience and solutions. You start hoping in him. That's what he's wanting to do. You know what verse 5 is teaching us? God allows suffering in our lives because he wants to pour his love in our hearts. And sometimes your heart is full of all these other things that you think I would just be happy if that answer was given. I would just be happy if I was healthy. I would just be happy if I received this provision. I would just be happy if I had a child. I would just be fulfilled and satisfied and complete if I had this thing. Well, that's crowding your heart. And God allows suffering your life to yank that out because you look at it and it's like he allows it to rot. He allows that, that thing that you're putting your faith in, he allows it like, a, like fruit that gets spoiled and old and, and you're like, this, this isn't what I thought it was. It's no longer, this isn't what I'm really waiting for. And so you throw the garbage out and it brings room in your heart like a jar. It creates a hole in your heart where God can pour out his love for you through the gift of the Spirit. He gives you himself, and himself is way better than whatever it is that is temporary that you're waiting for. 
And so hope does not put us to shame because God gives us himself. So let whatever you're suffering through produce hope. Don't see it as punishment. Suffering may be the very thing that God is allowing in your life so you can be able to receive his love. If you read verse 5, you come to this wise conclusion. Suffering may be the only thing that's going to get me to receive his love for me in a deeper way, a more fulfilling way. Now, I'm not inviting suffering over for dinner today. I know that you, like me, aren't excited about receiving suffering. But if suffering comes, endure. Let it produce character and hope within you. Allow God to move out the things of your heart that are temporary for the things that are eternal. Suffering wasn't a punishment. God had more in story for their store for their story. So the story continues in Luke chapter 1, verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, there's a lot of history behind this, and I'm going to have to sum it up to give you the picture of Luke's story. So Luke is writing to first century Palestinians who are in this day, in this age, and they're hearing this story. They're understanding that Zechariah was a priest. Like we said, you couldn't be called to be a priest, you had to be born a priest. And the setting is the temple. So I want to give you a history of the temple. What is the temple? The temple is the dwelling place of God, and it began way back with Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. Moses leads the people, the Israelites, out of Egypt because even before that, God promised the world there was going to be a savior, a son that was born to a woman in Genesis 3 verse 15. He promises that that one who is born is going to defeat our enemy. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a man, a man named Abram. He chooses this man and from this man, he says, I will create a family and a nation and I will create a family and a nation that will be a blessing to all the nations. This is my plan. And so God creates and develops the people of Israel. God did not choose the Jews. He created and developed and built the Jews. So he allowed them to go into 400 years of slavery because slaves don't assimilate into the culture. God produced and built a people of 2 million people that didn't assimilate into another culture, became the Jewish people. He delivers them out of slavery, and he gives them the law and the tabernacle. The, the, the instructions for the tabernacle was longer than the law, the 613 laws that that guy found. So they have the instructions for the tabernacle. Tabernacle, that word means dwelling. He dwells with us. God is with us dwelling. So God gave him a tabernacle and it was portable. It was like Legos with sticks. It, it was something that you could build up and it was as soon as the cloud goes, you can pack it all down and you can travel with it. And they had the tabernacle from 1446 BC until the time of the kings in 966 BC. And so for 400, almost 500 years, they had uh, the tabernacle, a portable dwelling place. Well, King David comes on the scene and he's like, you know what? I don't want this portable tent. What are we doing with this tent for our great God? Let's build them a real structure. Let's build them something that's permanent and it's going to be established. It's going to be here. And God's like, no, you got blood on your hands because he murdered Uriah. 
And his hands were guilty. He says, I can't let you build it, but I'll let your son build it. So King David designs the temple. He makes all the preparations for the temple. And then King Solomon gets the benefit of building the temple. He starts in 966 BC in the fourth reign. You can find that in 1 Kings chapter 6. And then seven years later in 959 BC, he establishes the temple. He makes the very first temple, Solomon's temple. It was grand. It was made of gold. It was splendorous. It was it was, uh, it was bigger than, well, it was almost, it wasn't as wide as this. It was almost bigger than this room. It's just more rectangular. This room is a different shape. It was huge. You could worship in it and you burn the offerings. It was amazing. And they, they dedicated that in 956 B, 959 BC. Well, the kingdom eventually spit, split. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom got uh, uh, taken over and captive by the Assyrians in 722 BC, but Jerusalem was left because Jerusalem was in Judea. It was in the southern kingdom. So the temple was still there in 722 BC. Well, 100 plus years later in 586 BC, on August 14th, 586 BC, the Babylonians come and they capture the southern kingdom and they totally destroy the temple. Solomon's amazing temple that has been around for like 400 years. It was a beautiful, wonderful temple, and they totally demolish it. Well, those captives of the southern kingdom get exiled, and they get dispersed into Babylon. Well, then Medo-Persia, they've been a rising kingdom. Cyrus or Darius, this king of Persia, gets this prophecy from God from another prophet. He sends the people, the exiles, return back to Jerusalem. You can read that story in Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra chapters 1 through 6, you have the rebuilding of the temple. And Ezra decides we're going to rebuild this temple. We're going to do it right. It's been totally destroyed. Well, they start in 538 B.C., but then this quickly, this legal trouble begins, and these people are like, no, you can't build that. This is against the law. And so they stop until 520 B.C., and starting in 520 B.C., they start rebuilding the temple again. And then finally, on March 12th, 516 B.C., they build the second temple. It's called the second temple. But it wasn't nothing like the first it wasn't anything like Solomon's temple. It was like uh, a shack compared to a mansion. As a matter of fact, some of the old men, they had to be in their 80s. Some of the old men that saw Solomon's temple, and then in 516, they saw this second temple rebuilt. They look at it and they start weeping and crying, huh, what's this beautiful temple? This is nothing. Well, that second temple stays around for hundreds of years. It stays in operation almost completely with one little interruption. In 167 BC, there was the Maccabean Revolt. Basically, this Greek king, this Greek emperor named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, he called himself Epiphanes, by the way. You know what Epiphanes means? It means God manifest. That's how he thought about himself. I'm God manifest, Epiphanes. They ended up nicknaming, nicknaming him Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epimenes, which means uh, the mad one, and they, they basically called him a beast. But he decided, you know what? We're not going to worship the, the Jewish God. We're going to worship Zeus because he wanted to promote Greek Hellenization. He wanted to promote Greek uh, culture. So he sets up an altar for Zeus in the temple, the second temple in 167 BC, and in that temple, he offers pig flesh on the altar. Well, if you know anything about Jewish culture, that's a huge no-no. And so the priests are all upset. This man named Mattathias, Mattathias Maccabeus, he's upset. And his son Judas, Judas the Hammer, 
His son, that's what Maccabeus means, the hammer. His son leads a revolt, and they capture the second temple back, and they decide, we're going to dedicate this temple back to the Lord in 167 B.C. And so Judas Maccabeus and all the Jewish revolters with him, they go in, they capture back the temple, and they get into the holy place, and there's the menorah that's in there. Well, they found out that there's only enough oil for one day for the menorah. That was, part, that was the candle that was in the holy place. And they thought, well, let's burn it. And so they poured the oil in and they burn it and the menorah miraculously burned for seven days. The entire festival, seven days of celebrating the rededication of the temple, it burned for seven days and they decided as the Jewish people, we're gonna celebrate this as the Feast of Lights or what's known in Hebrew as Hanukkah. Hanukkah during Christmas time is celebrating this rededication of the temple. So the Jews rededicate it. Then that temple continues on until about 37 BC when our character in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, Herod the Great, King Herod, King Herod comes on the scene and Caesar Augustus designates him as King of Judea, also known as King of the Jews. Do you know that that's what King of Judea means? They called him King of the Jews. That's important for another story in Luke. So King Herod gets called King of the Jews. And he's over them, and he's the kind of guy, he's half Jewish, he's half not Jewish, and he's trying to figure out, I want to get my attaboys, I want to get my accolades with Rome, because he was really just an administrator. He wasn't an independent king, he was just like an overseer over Judea. So he decides, I'm going to build these great buildings. I'm going to build these great buildings because in Jerusalem, there are three pilgrimages that happen every year. Every year, every able-bodied Jew comes to Jerusalem for one of the three pilgrimages. So uh, he builds this grand temple, and man, it was grand. It was amazing. In 20 BC, he builds this, uh, he builds this second temple around 20 BC. It's super huge. It's hard to see in the picture there. It is five football fields wide. That's how wide it is. You can fit, it's 36 acres large. It's 36 acres is the Temple Mount. He expands this little dinky second temple and he makes Herod's temple, this really grand temple. And he does this because he's trying to generate revenue. You know, Rome likes it when their kings bring money back to Rome. And so if you have Jerusalem, which is normally populated at about 150,000 people, and during the pilgrimages, you get about a million people there, that's 850,000 tourists three times a year. Well, if you get taxes from those 850,000 people three times a year, you're going to generate a lot, of, a lot of money. So he creates this. One teacher said it's like bringing an NFL uh, franchise to the city. He does this for, uh, for, for his franchise. So he augments the holy place, the second temple, and he builds a 15-story glistening white limestone building. It's capped with gold. You can see a little bit there, that, that sanctuary. It's so beautiful, it's so glistening, that one of the Jewish writers of their day in the first century said, you could see the Palestinian sun gleaming off the top of the temple from 30 miles away. 30 miles was a day's journey for them. So a day's journey away, you can see this temple. It was so grand. And so on this temple platform, 36 acres, you can fit 400,000 people on it. So Herod was doing it right. He would, you know, if you're going to have your performance review, might as well have this on there. And so Herod's trying to do his, his great stuff. Well, Zechariah was a priest in this day. That's the setting, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. 
So during the time of Herod, Herod the Great, who was king from 37 BC to 4 BC, he's there. This is the temple. Zechariah was a priest in this temple. Well, you could tell by the size, this is a pretty big temple. You know how many priests they had during his day? 18,000 registered men under the, line, the, the tribe of Levi during this time. There were so many of them that they couldn't all perform all the functions that were needed in the temple. So they had a division of labor. They had to take turns and for the really important uh, duties that only one guy can do during a day, like the burning of incense, they cast lots. It's like throwing dice and by chance you get chosen. Most of the priests never got to even enter into the holy place. They never even walked into that sanctuary. And so Zechariah, in our passage, this old man gets chosen by chance, it's not really by chance, Luke is making that clear, to serve in the temple. He finally gets to go, this is a once in a lifetime, you couldn't go more than once. Once your name got pulled, it couldn't go back in the, hot, in, in the hat for lots, and most guys didn't get to go in. So this was his chance, the first time he goes into the sanctuary. So when it says, now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, their divisions would go on duty for the temple two weeks out of the year. But most of the time they would be guarding the temple gates, like uh, keeping Gentiles and unclean people out. They would be cleaning up the temple because there's a lot of feces and blood and everything else. They would be organizing the sacrifices. They would be taking the food to give to the priest. They would be taking the money. They'd be organized. They had stalls on the outside of this. So the 18,000 priests were busy throughout the year, but special was Zechariah's lot. And he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the hour of incense. The hour of incense happened two times out of the day, around 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. It would be right before the morning sacrifice and right after the evening sacrifice. And so this was Zechariah's duty, and he had to perform this duty for one week. So he had one week to do this, and he offers fresh incense, and, and he does this. And here's the whole point. In Zechariah and Elizabeth's story, Everything that seems like chance is not chance. That's what Luke's point is. God is always in control. That's what, we, that's what Luke's intention is as he's telling you the story. This old couple who's awesome, you wouldn't believe it, they were barren. But that wasn't our punishment. That was God's divine design. And God chose for Zechariah during this point to get inside the temple to meet the angel who's going to tell him about John. So it wasn't an accident. And verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. The altar of incense is the first thing he sees. That was his duty to perform. That was specific to what he's doing. There's the angel. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. It was Gabriel. There's only two angels mentioned in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael, and this was one of them. And so he tells him, uh, fear gripped Zechariah's heart. By the way, this isn't a point, but whenever you're suffering, whenever you're having to endure suffering, one of the biggest temptations that you're going to have is fear. And that's highlighted in Zechariah's story. Fear gripped him, and that's not an accident. Fear was part of his story, and that's not, you know, it's just not in here accidentally in Luke's story. So fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. That was what God was wanting to teach Zechariah. For decades, old man, God has been hearing your prayer. Your prayer has been heard. 
Do you know what Elizabeth's name is? I'll, I'll read it. So, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Elizabeth is a Hebrew name. It's a Hebrew word. You know what Elizabeth means? It means the oath of God or the promise of God. That's what Elizabeth means. It's God's promise. You know what Zechariah's name is? In Hebrew, it's Zechar. Zechar means to remember. It's the verb to remember. And Yah is the shortened uh, version of Jehovah. So Zechar, Yah, Zechariah, that's how we say Zechariah. We get it for the Hebrew word Zechariah. That it means Jehovah or Yahweh remembers. When you put Zechariah and Elizabeth's name together, just to understand who they are as a couple, the setting, you know what it means? Jehovah remembers his promise. That's their name together. That's their namesake. You know what John means? And the, and the angel told them, name him John. You know what John means? God is gracious. So just from their story, from the very beginning, God hears their prayers, he remembers his promise, and God is gracious. And that's the beginning of the nativity. That's even before you get to the birth of Jesus. God made their personal desire to have a child. God made their personal desire a part of his ultimate plan. God has an ultimate plan that's even bigger than Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the angel tells them in verse 16, this is about their son, John. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. To make ready for the Lord a people. You know what we learn from this part of the Christmas story? The suffering of people is not God's punishment. God remembers his promise. For 400 years, it has been silent until this moment. John was the last prophet of the Old Testament. God has been silent as far as prophecy concerns to his people for 400 years. And God comes on the scene and says, hey, I remember my promise. I have heard your prayer. I am gracious. And my desire is to turn the hearts of many to the Father. God wants to turn the hearts of people to himself. That's what Christmas is about, of telling the story of the birth of Jesus so that people can know God loved you so much he did not want you to die in your sins, so he gave himself, the greatest gift ever given, he gave himself for you so that you would not die in your sins but that you would have eternal life. You would have life in his name. He wanted to turn the hearts of many, fathers to children, that they would listen, uh, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, so that people would be turned toward true wisdom, which is only found in Jesus, that they would be wise, finally, and have their hearts turned. Christmas began long before Jesus' nativity. It began all the way back in Genesis when God promised, I'm sending one who's going to be born of a woman, and he will crush your enemy, and he will save the people. It began all the way back there, and it continues now, and it's still the story that God has given us to, say, to share today. Christmas is about the birth of Jesus, not about the birth of John, but it begins that way so that we put ourselves in the story 
I can relate to Zechariah and Elizabeth. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the richness and the depth of your story and how you connect us to the truth. I thank you that you gave the tabernacle and you allowed the temple and your desire was to be with us. I thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us. And we pray as a church family, would you remind our hearts, would you remind our hearts of what you're doing and how you're working in the dark, you're working in the pain, you're working in unanswered prayers, decades of silence, hundreds of years of silence. We know that you remember your promise, that you keep your oath, and that you are gracious. Would you go with us today, help us to be the proclaimers of your good news. I pray for our Christmas Eve service that whoever does show up, that they would be blessed by your word and by the gift that never gets old. Thank you for giving of yourself. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.